Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 11th, 2022, a Tuesday, New Books Day in the publishing industry. We've done a number of books on Berlin, and we're back in Berlin today. Um, did a show uh, in August of this year, last summer, the summer of 2022, on Berlin uh, with Sinclair Mackay, who has a new book out, Berlin, Life and Death uh, in the City at the Heart of the World. It's a nonfiction book that presents Berlin as the symbolic heart of the 20th century. We've done a couple of Berlin novels too, one with Dan Vesperman, a uh, Cold War novelist. He has a new book out, Winter Work, and another with a, a post-Cold War surreal Berlin book with the Anglo-Indian writer Amit Chaduri. He has a wonderful new book out, Sojourn. Uh, and we are back in Berlin today uh, in the summer of Berlin in 1936, when Berlin was indeed the center of the world, the heart of the world, where everything was happening. The Olympic Games in Berlin in the summer of 1936. And my guest today has a new book out, a novel, That Summer in Berlin, Leisha Cornwall. And she's joining us from Canada, from uh, Alberta, Canada, of all places. Uh, Leisha, <laughs> welcome. Remind us of why Berlin in the summer of 1936 was the heart of the world, the capital of the world for a moment. Well, the, the Olympic Games were, were co very controversial at that point. They were um, looking at, uh, the world was sort of looking at Berlin and saying, well, they're, they, we should boycott because they're anti-Semitic and there's violence and there's all sorts of stuff going on. And a lot of people around the world said, oh, oh no, we want to do this because uh, Hitler's regime was actually quite admired. It was, uh, they'd gone from basically um, completely economically destitute after the First World War to a huge economic power in the world by, by 36. And uh, so they were doing everything that they could to make this a very uh, extreme uh, Olympic Games, like better than anything that had ever been done before. They were inventing rituals that had never been seen. The stadium was the biggest one that had ever been. They did tour. They did for the first time. They they carried the Olympic flame right. um, in 1936. Yes. Yes. And uh, that's that's such an iconic part of our our Olympic rituals now, and yet it was designed to showcase the the Nazis' connection to or the Aryan connection to the uh, the ancient Greeks, who they considered uh, the original Nordic people. <laughs> so, yeah, I was just in Greece last week, and I went to oh. uh, the the place where the Olympics were traditionally held. It's actually a remarkable um, a remarkable sight. Um, uh, on the Peloponnese, I would strongly advise people who, who visit Greece. So uh, enough Greece, uh, uh, <laughs> Um So you've built this novel around the, the summer of 1936. Um, you call it a, a romantic um, novel. I mean, many people will be familiar with your work uh, as a historical <laughs> romance novelist, a very successful one. Um, 
this book is what you call historical fiction. Is it romance or is it a, it has a serious kind of fiction? It has a romance in it, but it's not strictly uh, a romance book. It doesn't follow the romance tropes of, um, you know, sort of man and woman get together and end up together at the end of the book. Um, they kind of do, but uh, it's not sort of a guarantee. It's more about um, her story, about how she she um, she progresses, her arc um, of character development. So that's uh, it's a bit, but there is a romantic element in it. When I started publishing uh, uh, historical fiction, my editor at the time said, "Well, um, you have this background in romance, and we would really like to use that. So can you please add romantic elements to your book?" Which you know is not hard; <laughs> it's quite fun. So yes. The characters are just a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more, um, I guess, uh, developed than they were in my romances. You have a, a fictional Mitford girl at the heart of the book. The Mitfords were, of course, the British aristocratic family made up of remarkable girls. One very much involved, actually, with Hitler. One, Unity Mitford, who was a great sympathizer and friend of Hitler. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Jessica uh, Mitford, who was one of the great leftist critiques, I guess, of fascism and capitalism in the world. Uh, tell me about your your fictional uh, heroine, um, uh, a British female aristocrat. I think that the Mitfords really like to uh, get on each other's nerves and sort of, uh, you know, be counter to the sisters. But uh, the, the one that I created that was closest to one of the Mitfords was... Uh, uh, the, the heroine of the book is named Vivienne, and her, her stepsister is her travel companion to Berlin. And she meets the son of their host, who is an up-and-coming um, Nazi officer, and instantly falls in love and decides she's going to, uh, she, she, she wants to stay in, in Germany. Um, so that was yeah, There's a little bit of the, uh, the unity method about her, the one who yeah. falls in love with the Nazi. Exactly. And she actually meets uh, Diana Mitford in the story at some point at tea with Magda Goebbels. So, uh, yes, uh, that's also uh, discussed, the uh, the British fascist movement that um, uh, Diana Mitford married um, uh, Oswald Mosley. And they were incarcerated in England uh, for the duration of the war because they were so strongly fascist. And it, it seems to me, um, Leisha, that you've, in an odd way, written yourself into the story. Uh, behind you is a little camera. Your, yes. your name, uh, which I pronounce Leisha, is spelled L, um, L E E C I A. Yep. But of course, the real heroine, if, if, if it's a gendered term of the book, is a camera, uh, the Leica. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, because your heroine is a photographer and she uses her camera to go around Berlin and snap it and yes. capture the truth. Did you play around with that? Are you a big fan of Leica's and is it somehow associated with your name? Uh, no, it wasn't associated with my name. And this is this is one of my son's cameras. He collects cameras, including my original 35 millimeter. But this is actually a Zorky. It's, uh, it's was made after the war. It's very similar. It's a copy of a Leica. So this is what we have as our stand-in Leica for uh, for pictures and things like that. But I did go to a 
uh, camera store, a vintage camera store, and consult with one of the uh, with the man who owned it, and said and asked him questions. Well, how would this how would this operate? How would she be able to to load it? Would she have to do that on the fly, or would she have to do it in the dark room? And he sort of uh, taught me everything I needed to know about how. Uh, a real Leica would work in 1936. He even put it on the counter and said, "There, there is your Leica. That is what you what you are looking at." <laughs> so yeah, there's a new one out. Uh, it's just uh, for photographer geeks. Uh, you can buy now a twenty thousand dollar Leica, and it has zero uh, megapixels. I'm oh. curious, also in terms of your research and your thinking for the book, um, Lini Riefenstahl, of course, was a, a a really important figure in Nazi propaganda world, also a talented artist in her own right. She made a 1938 movie on the Olympic Games, on the Berlin Games uh, called Olympia. Um, This idea of the camera and women leveraging their power behind a camera, was that something you gave some thought to for the book? Oh, I loved reading about Lenny Riefenstahl. Um, she, in a time when the Nazis and uh, world movie making in general was incredibly anti-feminist, she stood out as someone who uh, was really uh, respected, and she was extremely innovative. I mean, when they when Hitler asked her to film the Olympics, she took a year before the games started to invent. Um, film techniques and new camera lenses and new methods for filming underwater stuff um so it was really quite remarkable Although, i mean i mean this is not a a, a book or a conversation about Lini riefenstahl but no but she is interesting. admired i mean she was a nazi yes she was unfortunately. and the book where and the movie olympia i mean it's a work of art in its own right but it's also a piece of horrible propaganda in favor of the nazi regime yeah, and she, she never admitted any guilt um, in, in being a Nazi or taking advantage of, of the, the opportunities that were afforded to her. But um, it really didn't get her very far in the end, unfortunately. I mean, she, she tried to promote Olympia in the U.S. in 1938. And when she got there, it was just after Kristallnacht had happened, which was a huge riot that in, in Germany that uh, targeted Jewish businesses and people. And, and there's a lot of death and destruction and nobody in Hollywood would even take a look at her. So she sort of had to leave, slink away in disgrace. <laughs> so. Well, that's, um, that's a reassuring story. The, the Olympics, <laughs> of course, it, it were, I guess, in some ways, a propaganda victory. Absolutely. Nazis, but also significantly embarrassing. They're very well known for the success of, yeah. of Jesse Owens, the black American athlete. To what extent did Owens... Um, uh, and his success, do you think, undermine the Olympics? And, and I assume in, in the narrative, you've, you've got some stuff about Owen. Uh, very, a, a little bit, not a lot about him. I, um, he wasn't the focus of the book, but he is, he is mentioned and, and the effect that he's having on the games and how he's, you know, sort of uh, making the, the Nazis uh, a little angry. Um, he was extremely important. And, and yes, it was, a, it was a very powerful Thing that the world saw and I mean that's why he's he's probably the most famous Olympic athlete ever um, and he made one of the one of the German athletes a guy named Lutz Long um, he saw that that Jesse Owens was very nervous during the long jump and he gave him some advice and they ended up being very very good friends and Long was actually told uh, no you you don't do that you you are not friends with this person 
um, which, and there's sort of a myth that, you know, Hitler didn't shake Owen's hand. Well, that apparently was uh, actually uh, not custom for the, uh, the head of state to congratulate athletes. So it wasn't a snub, it was just the way it was. Were there any uh, Jewish athletes, uh, say, in the, in the American team or in the British or French teams? I assume there were. There was, um, there was one girl who was um, trying to get onto the, who was included on the, the uh, German team. And a lot of them participated. If, they, if, they were, if you were German, you left Germany and uh, participated with other teams. And I'm not sure of any specific athletes. That's not something that I, I researched. Uh, I, you know, I looked more at... Um, at people like Jesse Owens and and things like that than I did at uh, individual other individuals because I wasn't going to be including them. <laughs> so, Leisha, um, one of the most famous images of all of from a Leica camera was, and yeah. some people watching this can see the the picture of a, a Soviet soldier um, placing uh, watches. <laughs> uh, a, a Soviet flag on a Berlin rooftop, a completely destroyed uh, Berlin rooftop. Yes. Um, the interesting thing, it never really occurred to me, but think about your book in Berlin in 1936. It was an entirely different city than it is today. Just as if you went to London in 36 or New York or Paris, it's relatively similar. But the Berlin of 36 was entirely different from the Berlin of, of 2022. What yeah. was it like architecturally? Um, I think it was very traditional and uh, very, uh, very sort of old world European. And I mean, there was a lot of uh, 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 new Nazi uh, architecture being built in this sort of very brutalist style, very um, oversized sort of design to make people feel, going in there feel small and scared. Phallic, um, in other words. Yes, rather. One of the most amazing uh, facts that I read was um, in 1945, the, the fellow who um, headed the uh, what part of the Olympic Committee in Germany, he got all the youth in Germany into the Olympic Stadium and he said, okay, you are now going to war. You're going to, in the Olympic spirit, you must uh, fight the, the, the Russians and defeat them and save our fatherland. So it's gone from being a celebration of youth to being a sacrifice of youth. And it was just such a you know shiver goes up your spine thinking that that it turned into that uh in the end which is you know in your research and in the novel do you deal at all with political opposition uh, domestic opposition to the nazis in berlin berlin historically and it remains still as a bastion of the left yes. um and in 1936 we had the first broad imprisonments what what year was uh, crystal night was later right Crystal Knight was 1938. Right, um, so Crystal Knight was 38, and uh, it was illegal, I think, to be a communist or even a socialist, but they hadn't imprisoned half uh, the, 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 the levels of people, uh, in addition, obviously, to the Jews. No. So to so what extent was the Olympics an opportunity for opponents of Hitler to talk to the foreign media, to press, to characters like your heroine in your book? Well, they, they did their best to get the message out. A lot of um, a lot of journalists saw through the the facade and and sort of told the world. And a lot a lot of others were like, "Hey, they're pretty good. They're obviously nice folks. You know, we should we should give them the benefit of the doubt." Um, you had things like um, uh, just you know 
miles out of outside of Berlin, they were already, while well, Jesse Owens is running in the stadium, they're building Sachsenhausen. And um, they had uh, sort of outside of outside the country, they had pamphlets printed that looked like ordinary tourist brochures. And then when you open them, they had pictures of concentration camps and uh, maps showing where all the political um, assassinations had taken place um so there was there was opposition but it was very very carefully controlled and to be um, not I, I don't mean to say fair to the nazis but in 1936 the concentration camps were prisons they weren't uh they weren't places where you uh industrially murdered uh jews or, or no i mean they, they were still places where people died and they were they were right they were treated miserably and, and press that were allowed to go to tour these camps uh, yeah. sort of uh, met by sort of prisoners who were saying, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, so, so what extent did the, the Nazis in 36 during the Olympics, did they sort of open up Berlin? I remember when the World Cup was, uh, was held four years ago in Russia, in Putin's mm -hmm. Russia, uh, for a month or two, he opened the country up. I'm sure they will do the same in Qatar for the upcoming World Cup. Yes. Um, to what extent was Berlin in, in the summer of 36 a freer place than it was in 35 or 37? I think it was a freer place, but yet it was also carefully controlled. I mean, the athletes had guides to take them basically from the athletes' village to the stadium. And uh, the same with the the tour the, the journalists. They were uh, sort of taken to places where you know they were they were seeing what the government wanted them to see and report on. Um, so that was uh, it was uh, otherwise everyone was supposed to be nice to everyone else. There was even a, a rule, you know, if it's a foreign Jewish person, you have to treat them with the same courtesy and politeness you treat anybody else. But they suspended. Uh, uh, arrests of, of Jewish people for, for crimes, and they were very, very careful about what they were showing the world. Um, and the, the Nazi newspaper, Die Sturmer, was uh, sort of hidden away and, and not displayed and, uh, during the Olympics, and, and they would make fabulous speeches. I think Goering made a speech saying, look, we're, we're, you know, we just want to be a good friend to the rest of the world and good world citizens, and we mean no harm, we're a peaceful nation. And in the meantime, they were having meetings with Hitler and Hitler issued a memorandum, which was issued during the Olympics, saying that I want this country to be ready economically and militarily to go to war within four years. So they were already planning uh, to do this. And yet they were standing up there and lying. <laughs> so, but at a, the heart of your story is this British female aristocrat who yeah. is surrounded with appeasers. I mean, it's easy in retrospect to be critical of appeasement, but in 1936, it wasn't obvious to many people, maybe Winston Churchill, but he was an outsider. No one treated him as if he was sane in 1936. It wasn't obvious at that point that Germany was going to go to war. And it certainly wasn't obvious that they were going to pursue the final solution. No. Um, and if you if you think of these poor women who lost lost sons and everything else in the First World War, how terrible that was. They were huge appeasers and uh, people who were going through the uh, the Great Depression were looking at Germany and saying, well, look how successful they are. We should be more like that. Um, and, you know, they even the king of England. Yeah. Oh, yes. 
And I and I guess also within that is a critique of Versailles and mm -hmm. the punitive nature of Versailles, which was used by the Nazis to justify much of what they did. Yeah, and they just walked right through it and the world let them because I think they, they may have felt a little guilty about Versailles. I'm not sure the French did, but yeah. As we teeter, uh, Leisha, on perhaps, uh, hopefully not, but possibly another terrible war over the Ukraine and Putin who has stuff in common with Hitler, although I, I think it's hard to Absolutely. argue that he's the next Hitler. Is there a, a message in the book? I mean, it's it's a novel and it's supposed to be fun and interesting and serious in its own way. But do you want to say something to the world about the dangers of war and the ease with which these rotten regimes seduce outsiders? I think we have to be vigilant. And as individuals, we have to do whatever we can to to try and, and keep the world on an even keel, I guess, which is awfully difficult as, as one person. But, um, I mean, you look at people like... Um, uh, I'm uh, not... <laughs> the names of... Uh, gone from my mind, Malala um, and, uh, you know, uh, Gandhi and people like that who stood up and said, this world has to change. We have to do better. And I think anybody can do that. And that's that's uh, sort of what um, the heroine of the story is attempting to do. Now, um, yes, she sort of gets the message out, uh, but it's not, not entirely believed. So, you know, war comes anyway, as we know. So... But uh, as for Ukraine, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen there. But, you know, I'm just so, in so in awe of, of that country. My ancestors are from Ukraine. Um, and uh, Not from Cornwall? Not from Cornwall. That's my, that's my husband's family okay. name. And uh, my, my father-in-law was actually from Liverpool. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yes, we're, we're Scottish and English on, on my husband's side and, and Ukrainian English on my side. So, Alicia, you're a prolific writer. You've sold many tens of thousands of books. You obviously have a lot of fun writing, do you? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It keeps me off the street. <laughs> well, in Canada, is it bad to be on the street? <laughs> well, I think it's bad to be on the street anywhere. So, yes. Um, you know, it's, it's not a, a huge... Do you have any tips? I mean, lots of aspiring Leisha Cornwalls who would like to turn out these best-selling books, romance books, novels, anything about your style, your research habits, your discipline, anything that you can impart to our audience of some of them at least are wannabe authors of popular fiction. I, th I think the most important thing that an aspiring author can do or a, an author is find your tribe, meaning that no one understands. It's a very lonely, isolated career. You spend a lot of time listening to the people in your head. Um, and, you know, no one understands a writer like another writer. And they can be supportive. They can understand the bad days and help you celebrate the good days. And, uh, you know, there's there's no better source of, uh, I guess, uh, camaraderie than, than that. So, yes, I mean, find a writing group and, and join that and uh, listen to the advice that they give you and the, the support. Did so. you have a group that you presented that summer in Berlin to? Um, yes, I have. Um, I, I'm a member of a couple of groups. I'm a member of the Women's Fiction Writers Association, which is an online group, which is quite large. And they have all sorts of programs and support and 
and contests and, and the whole thing. And the other group that I'm part of is my agent's uh, clients. have We have a, a Facebook group and we share um, bad days, good days. Uh, we, release, we reveal each other's covers. We support each other's publication dates. Um, and that's a that's a whole bunch of published authors sort of coming together to uh, to support each other, which is just there. I, I haven't met most of them in person, and yet they're my best friends. <laughs> so, Alicia, as I sort of half uh, half jokingly said, the hero of your book is a camera. That camera, the the Leica, mm -hmm. has captured some of the most iconic images of the twenty twentieth century. We we talked earlier about. Um, yeah. Uh, about Berlin. This one for people watching of the French of a French picnic, uh, scenes from New York, um, self images, uh, the famous picture of the sailor kissing the girl in the New York street. Robert Kappa's image of a death of a loyalist soldier in, in the Civil War. Many other remarkable images, including, as I said, this this image of the the flag of victory in 1945, the Soviet flag. Um, mm -hmm. what, what can a novelist do that a Leica can't? And what can well, a Leica do that a novelist can't? Well, the Leica was actually invented by a, a mountaineer who wanted something light and portable to be able to take up to take pictures um, on, on the top of the mountain. Mm. And uh, because of that, that sort of invention, uh, small cameras were able to, to take photos, uh, candid photos. So they're unobtrusive. People didn't have to freeze and sit there for 10 minutes while you expose the film. So you got much more, um, uh, I guess, iconic and, and some, like some of those pictures. I mean, right. I mean, this picture in particular for people watching of an Vietnam. attack in Vietnam with a screaming child is, I mean, some of these, these images are, are etched into our souls, into our consciousness. Yeah, and and the, those those cameras gave rise to photojournalism, and which made it possible to have images like that. Life magazine was founded in 1936, and uh, you know, colored film was starting to be developed for for cameras then as well. So it was it was quite amazing. And and as a as a author, I guess I can uh, have my my character in situations where she can capture images like that. Um, which is you can have your like her and eat it, in other words. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, I can resist that one. Well, congratulations, Leisha. I'm sure it's going to be another bestseller. It has a wonderful <laughs> title and a wonderful story. Um, okay. The book is just out today, so I'm sure you're feeling really good. Uh, what yeah. else are you reading? Um, what, what do you enjoy? What am I reading? I just read a book by uh, one of my author friends called One Woman's War by Christine Wells. And she is she's writing about uh, the real Miss Moneypenny. Uh, so she's she's looking at uh, Ian Fleming, who was uh, notoriously. The, uh, yes. And notorious uh, woman, I, I have to get her on the show. Is she another Canadian writer? She's Australian, actually. And she oh. just said her, her book just came Similar. out. Are they Canadians and Australians? Are they similar? Um, I'm teasing you. I, I... <laughs> I think we're more similar to uh, New Zealanders and can, and uh, Americans are more similar to Australians. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's, it. you know, we're, we're all members of the Commonwealth, I guess, but, you know, we're very different. We're not Every... the British. I mean, not, not the, the Americans, right? No, no, God, no. <laughs> no. But, 